Here we go. This is a podcast with Daisy Auger Dominguez. Why don't more people raise their hands for board service? I see that people are working towards choices that they believe will lead them toward a more meaningful life, choices that will enable them to feel a real sense of purpose. 1.5 million nonprofits, that's a lot of board seats and a ton of need. My guest today is not one of those folks who sits on the sidelines. She has a big job, and she sits on not one, not two, not three, but four nonprofit boards. As a BIPOC woman who is also the chief people officer of a major media company, she brings important expertise and diversity to each of these four boards. I'm guessing my guest has gotten more than four board invitations. I have all sorts of questions for my guest today, and I'm going to try to channel the ones you might have as well, with the possible exception of asking for her contact information so that you can extend an invitation to her to join your board. Today, Daisy and I will talk about the factors that led lead her to a particular board, what she needs to know about the organization and its leadership before she says yes. I'd love to know if she's ever turned down an invitation. Don't you want to know how she navigates the responsibilities of being on multiple boards? I know I do. How does she deal with fundraising for multiple boards? But we'll focus on board recruitment and diversity. Understanding how to diversify your board may be one of the biggest questions nonprofit leaders have. Finally, I want you to listen to hear what Daisy talks about when she talks about how it feels to be a board member, when it feels just right, and when it doesn't. Yes, Daisy is on four boards and has a senior role in a media company. I'm pretty sure she has a life, too. I don't know how she made time for this conversation, but I'm awfully glad she did. Enough for me. Let's get this conversation started. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Daisy Auger Dominguez has made it her mission to make workplaces more equitable and inclusive. As the chief people officer at Vice Media Group, Daisy leads a global team responsible for people operations, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, and social impact practices. Her TED Talk, Inclusion Revolution, and her new book, Inclusion Revolution, with Seal Press, calls on everyone to take on the work of dismantling inequity in the workplace. Oje Dominguez has designed, led, and scaled organizational transformations at Moody's Investor Services, the Walt Disney Company, Google, and Viacom, and founded Oje Dominguez Ventures, a workplace culture consultancy. A dynamic speaker, writer, and advisor, Daisy serves on the boards of Planned Parenthood Federation of America, Brooklyn Children's Museum, the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation, and St. Anne's Warehouse. In her spare time, she wrote this book, Inclusion Revolution, The Essential Guide to Dismantling Racial Equity in the Workplace. Daisy, we have a lot to talk about. I'm really glad you're here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Joan. I'm thrilled to be here. So before we get into the world of nonprofit boards, let's talk about publishing for just a moment. 
And I want you to talk a little bit about your book and why you felt compelled to write it. And I want to just say the thing that really struck me just in the intro alone is it really captures the audience and speaks directly to the leader. And I love something that you said. You said, I want you to be that leader who shines on others, not the one who dims it. And I loved that. So um, talk a little bit about your book so folks know that they should buy it immediately. Yes, please, please go out and buy Inclusion Revolution, the essential guide to dismantling racial inequity in the workplace. Um, Thank you so much, Joan, again. When I think about the publishing world, you have to start by admitting that it's one of the most opaque industries in the world. (laughs) How one becomes an author, much less a published author, a, you know, a, an author that people want to speak to. I didn't grow up with anyone teaching me how to do that. And I certainly had to lean on the expertise of a lot of my friends and colleagues who are authors when I started even considering the pursuit of writing a book. Yeah. Um, and mu- much of what shaped my desire to write this book was my own experience in the workplace. Throughout my career, I have been an only. I rose from junior to executive ranks in some of the world's most admired companies, which I write about. But I often felt vulnerable, afraid, overlooked. In the early part of my career, as the only Latina and the youngest person in most rooms, I often fell prey to what Kenji Yoshino has coined covering, that practice of downplaying who you are to survive in an organizational context. And any of us who come from different racial, ethnic, gender identities, sexual orientation identities, no, we have covered for far too long. And you simply can't perform at your best when you're constantly modifying or playing down who you are. And that's about, your- that's about authenticity, isn't it? Right. It is. ha- if you, you can't know, bring your full self to, the, to, the, to your, every engagement you have, personal or professional, you're not going to be at your best, full stop. You're not because you're working too hard to be somebody else. Right. And you are, frankly, putting away what I call your magic sauce, right? The things that make you who you are, the reasons why you get hired in the first place. You are told that you are coveted, that you want to be brought into these organizations. But the minute you're there, you're told, wait, 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 but now we need you to be like everybody else. <laughs> now, all of that magic that you brought, we're going to suck it right out of you and we're going to make you act like everybody else. And that is, it's exhausting, it's insulting, and it's, and, you know, it's, it can be traumatic for many people. And, you know, it's, it's possible, and I, and I say this to people often, it's possible for people like me, like you, like others, to be invited to important meetings and be asked to speak up, even, you know, be put up at the front of the table and still not feel that people like them belong there. Right? We all want to be where we are supported and encouraged to grow. Instead, many of us, and I speak from my experience as a woman of color, we are tolerated yet not accepted. We're put on display for optics, but we are disempowered and silenced. And I wanted to write a book for managers to your point about you know, that line that, that struck with you. I wanted to write a, a book for the managers who are not trained to think and do this work, I wanted to give them the knowledge, the skills, and the confidence to be able to shine a light on all of their team members. Yeah, I love that. And I, at my house, we have a visceral reaction to the word tolerance. My my <laughs> wife says, I do not want to be tolerated. I tolerate lima beans. <laughs> 
Ooh, ooh, I um, can't even tolerate those. So there you go. <laughs> so um, the book is very practical, right? Yeah. And I and I also wanted to know if I'm a if I run a nonprofit, will I find this will I find this book as equally valuable? Yes, most of the stories are obviously my stories from the corporate space, but there are also there are, there are a few examples from the nonprofit space because I have sat on several nonprofit boards. I I have seen what works and what doesn't on, on that end as well. But fundamentally, the book is is equipped to walk you through the life cycle of an employee, no matter what institution they're in. From when you recruit them, you onboard them, you performance manage them. If you are running an institution, if you are the steward as a board member of an institution, these are all of the skill sets and the tools and the information that you need to manage your teams effectively. Yeah, there's a, so teams are teams. There's a universal in that. Although I might actually argue, having been both on the corporate side and having led a nonprofit, that the nonprofit sector has more of an opportunity to lead in this regard in some ways because uh, okay, I'm going to just say this. Yeah, the motive to be there is not a profit motive. The motive to be there is to make meaningful impact, to repair the world, right? And so they people come to nonprofits more prepared to have, maybe not skilled to have difficult conversations, but more ready for them because they're coming with perhaps greater EQ or they're coming with sort of passion that makes them more receptive to some of this work. I, I wonder if you agree with that. You know, I, I agree with that, but yep. that, is, that is also what makes it so much more painful and challenging when it doesn't work in nonprofits. And I, oh, I'll talk about you, that. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you this, you know, I, 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 I won't say the board, but I joined a board and we were bringing in a new head of diversity and inclusion. And the new head of diversity and inclusion asked me to go to an all-day training that they were testing out for the organization. And Joan, I left that meeting feeling so heartbroken for the employees of that nonprofit that I was serving. And I immediately emailed and called the, ch the chair of the board and said, here's the thing. We've sold our employees on a bill of goods. We've told them that we are eradicating all of this racism and patriarchy and damage, and yet they are living in damage and patriarchy and racism every single day. Ah. And if we are going to do better, we have to be better. Yeah. And, and that, you know, I, I use a similar example in the corporate space. What I, what I always say is, listen, I want to reduce the gap between what we tell the world we are and how our employees experience us. Yeah. Because even in a corporation that is there for profit-driven purposes, they've got all these marketing ploys of who you want to be. I mean, I worked at Google and I talk about my experience at Google in the book. And when I was hired at Google, it was the first corporation that someone literally extended their hand and said, welcome, let's change the world. Joan, that was like, like music to my ears. That was what I've always hoped to do. You know, this is why I sit on boards and work in the for-profit sector, because I've always believed in the combination of these sectors and these industries. Fabulous. And, and that, that was really wonderful to me. But then I entered and realized, oh, wait, it's just a corporation like any other corporation. They're still doing this. But when you're in a nonprofit space, you are telling the world that you are whatever it is that your mission is, that that, that is who you are. And yet the employees internally, there's usually a disconnect between that external work and how they themselves are treated. 
And there is a lot less tolerance for that right now. I will use that word because yeah. employees are far less tolerant about that behavior. And I would say that is why nonprofits should be overly emphasizing this work. Right, and that they almost have a high, they, they need to hold themselves to even a higher standard. That's absolutely. what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. And, and you know, it's interesting. I am working with a client who is a black woman who has come into an organization as its new CEO and was told that, come, we are going to change everything. And that wasn't, they said it, but they weren't ready for what that actually meant. And so it has made things very, very difficult. And I think that's that's definitely true. And I want to shift a little bit to talking about boards. Mm -hmm. Definitely an issue when it comes to boards and hiring new CEOs and and who they who they bring in and whether Mm -hmm. or not the work's actually been done. Mm -hmm. So which actually which actually does lead me to this next question. So uh, you have lots of board experience, nonprofit board experience, and I myself am thoroughly convinced that there is no thriving nonprofit without a strong and healthy board. I just, I, I just, I have seen it too many times, and so I talk about this a lot. And when I do, when I talk about boards and how to make them strong and healthy, one of the most common questions I am asked. How do I recruit people of color to my board? So I want to ask you a question. As a woman of color, can you tell me how that question lands for you? Oh, it's always grating. It, you know, it's, it's the question that I've been asked my entire career, whether it's on a board, whether it's in a company, whether it's on a team. You know, and I, I, I always, I, I've, I've been, and I write about this in the book, and I, and I, I coach the leaders that I work with on this, we're asking the wrong questions. Yes. So, so first of all, tell me, so I believe that there are a lot of people that don't understand the problem with that question. Could you define, could you describe the problem with the question oh my and why gosh, you find it great? There's grading? so many problems with that question. The, 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 the first thing I always tell people is you shouldn't be asking, how do we hire more diverse talent? The question you should be asking is why what are the conditions that have that have been created so that this organization is predominantly white? <laughs> what you know? What have we been doing, you know, consciously and unconsciously, to make this an inhospitable place for people of color and people of different identities and backgrounds? Like you've you've got to understand that first before you can go to solve the problem. the The first part of inclusion revolution is focused on reflecting. And I call it building your readiness to do this work. And, and it was something, frankly, that I, I pushed my editor on because my editor wanted me to start with tons of tips right away. And I was like, I can't tell people what to do right away if they don't even know why they're in this, what their why is, for what reason are they trying to solve for what they're trying to solve for in the first place. And so when you start with the question, how do I hire more diverse talent? It gives me the sense that you haven't done the work <laughs> to really totally. understand what you know what is the organization that you want to be what has kept you from being that organization for having that right mix of talents and backgrounds and experiences and then you also have to ask yourself are you willing to do what it's going to take because to your point earlier about the black woman that was hired to be a ceo it's easy to say yes let's hire a black woman because it is politically correct now and everyone's doing it and because black women save the world <laughs> i was like so we're going to put a black woman here and she's going to do it and we all know black women do save the world 
But it is incredibly unfair because they haven't actually done the work to recognize, well, what is it? If this is an organization that has never had a black CEO, will they be will they be accepted? Will they be welcomed? Or will they, they will, will they face hostility? What will be the challenges they experience? Not because of the lack of capacity or or intellect, but because the organization has been designed in a way to not be welcoming, right. to not be open, and frankly, sometimes to be outright hostile towards this talent. <laughs> yep. So yes, I have and, a lot of emotions when I hear that. <laughs> um, and and I want I, I wanted to hear all of them because I, I I do believe that many people who ask that question don't understand how it lands. No, and it's and it's actually I, I should say. It usually comes from a place of good intent, and so, you know, and I, and I do believe that. I do so, believe, and I so, give people that grace. I'm actually reading a book called "Subtle Acts of Exclusion," hmm. and it's uh, it's a way of reframing the idea of microaggressions because okay. the authors posit that microaggressions are neither micro nor are they aggressions, and that mm-hmm. the first sort of order of business is to put it right out there on the table and say. We assume good intent. Yeah. We assume good intent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to over-communicate the good intent you intended is <laughs> puts you in a defensive posture and all of those kinds yeah. of things. But yes, mm-hmm. you're totally right. So it seems to me that you have already said this, but uh, the question was, have you ever been the person that introduces a board to racial diversity? Oh, you, um, what you said only I have been the only the I only have, member I have been the only have been the I have been the first or I have been part of efforts at, at more thoroughly diversifying a board I have been I have been at all those stages so what so I want to uh, because I also really think that so many nonprofit organizations are at varying points of their journeys and in fact many of them at very early stages of their journeys talk about what that what what does that look like for you to be the only person of color on a board? I mean, it's isolating. It's lonely. <laughs> it 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 can feel performative. You know, I I joined I joined the board where they brought in two of us. We were the first two racially diverse board members, but they brought in two, and I thought that they were, the intentionality behind that was to not just make it be me or that other person, uh-huh. but to come in as a pair. And I thought that the intentionality behind that was thoughtful. And it was the beginning of bringing in more racially diverse talent, you know, over the years. But when I've been, when I've been the only, and this was, this was, this hasn't been in any of my current boards, but in, in previous boards, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you've got to be wondering what do you say and how do you say it all the time, John? Because you know that whether, again, always assuming good intent, you don't know where people are coming from, right? It's, it's, if I say it, is it going to be attributed to me being Latina? Is it going to be being attributed to being a woman? You know, these are, these are the questions, by the way, this is the calculus that I and so many other women of color have been making our entire careers, right? And people of, you know, of, of different backgrounds, like these, this is the calculations that you're constantly trying to think of. But when you're on a board, when your responsibility is to be a steward of that organization and to ask the tough questions and, you know, and to understand the organization, when you're coming at it from a deficit of feeling like an other, it makes it harder to contribute in a more meaningful way. I completely, I think that's totally true. Let's talk. So, so you're on four boards. I guess you could be on 14 boards or you could be on two, <laughs> no, two just boards. Four, that's it. <laughs> just <Yeah>. four. <laughs> 
I want nonprofit folks to hear, you know, what are the considerations that you, Daisy, make as you are approached for board service? I mean, let's set aside, assuming you have the time or that you're going to make the time. Um, And I'm assuming that passion for the mission, if it's not at the top of the list, it probably should be. But how do you, what factors do you consider as you are approached for board service? I'll give you examples because I always I always find that that's that's easier to explain and um, super helpful and, and, too. And and also so you know like, yeah I'm on four boards and I right now the the reason why I say no to anything is because I'm on four boards. <laughs> so my you know I'm like I I am at capacity but as I was joining these boards I like to think that I've become savvier. My the oldest board that I sit on right now is Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And I was approached to join the board of Planned Parenthood when I moved back from California to New York City. I had lived in California when I worked at Disney and at Google. I came back home to work at Viacom. And a friend of mine was in the nominating committee of Planned Parenthood. And she and Cecile, who was a former uh, CEO of Planned Parenthood, had engaged in this effort to diversify the board. The board was traditionally very female and white. And the year that I joined the board was the most racially diverse year that okay. of, of nominees. And since then, we've kept that going. So I was part of like the emerging class. And when my friend Carmen reached out to me, I told her two things. One, I've never advocated for reproductive rights. So I'm not sure that I'm the right person for this. However, I've spent my entire career advocating for women and people of color and people of difference of being able to control their careers. And if they can't control their bodies, they can't control their careers. Uh, And uh so, so, so I see a direct line between this. And I think that this would be fabulous. Um, And the second thing that I asked her was talk to me about the racial and ethnic diversity. I know you're Latina. I I know you're an Afro-Latina, but talk to me. And she walked me through in the most authentic of ways, Joan, what, the board was doing to diversify its ranks and where all the gaps were. Uh And it was an exciting opportunity to join a national board. I had never sat on a national board. So that that for me, it was also joining a board is about what are the skills I'm going to learn? What's of value to me? So it was a national board. This was my first national board. So there's, there's the value in that. It was someone that I trusted, right? Someone that I respected. I went through the interview process and frankly, the interview process didn't really wow me. The interview process is also another stage where you, you know, and I, you know, I've I've led recruitment teams for most of my career. So I know that this is the time when you get people excited. It didn't really wow me as much. But during that time, I was doing my own research on the organization uh-huh. and realized that's when I came to that realization, Joan, of, oh, this is what I've been fighting for my entire career. And if we cannot control our bodies, and if Latino communities who, you know, I, I grew up with this tremendous stigma on reproductive rights and you know and from a religious perspective if i can have an impact on the latino communities and the young women and mothers and you know and trans folks who need access to the to this healthcare then that gave me a sense of tremendous you know worthwhile endeavors and so that's that's how i joined planned parenthood 
So the before board, before you move on to the next board, let me ask you another question about that. It, just, yes. it made me it made me think of a question. So you are a chief people officer, which, by the way, it is like to me one of the number one skills I want on a board. So when mm-hmm. I say to people, "Do you have someone who?" I yes. often say, "Do you have someone who is a chief people mm-hmm. officer? Someone who is in HR?" Yes. That skill is incredibly valuable, especially if you are a smaller organization. Mm -hmm. So you go through a recruitment process that doesn't exactly wow you, and you're a chief people officer. Didn't dissuade you, or or did it? Did what happened is that that your that your passion for joining began to offset what what it outweighed it. I see. Okay, It, it outweighed it, and because I was able to, I had. This was a particularly. I, I may not have joined Planned Parenthood if I didn't have the relationship I had with the with head Carmen. of the nominating committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Carmen was giving me the information whenever something didn't wow me. She would say, "I know we're working on that, and here's what we're doing towards that piece." I will say, and, and thank you for reminding me. You know, obviously, when when you're being asked to join a board, you always want to know, well, well, what you know, what role am I going to play? Yes. Um, you know, what what do you what do you want me to do? And they they were looking at me because of my DNI experience. Correct. And, I was okay with that. I'll tell you, I have now I'm on the nominating uh, committee of Planned Parenthood and I have had black and brown people tell me I will join the board, but I do not want to be on the DNI committee. I want to be on other committees mm-hmm. because I do not want to be pigeonholed into that committee, which is absolutely respectable and, you know, and, and a worthwhile piece. And I love it when they tell me that. Right. So like, Great. And by the way, I wasn't even thinking of you for that. <laughs> Well, but but right is 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 what that tells me, right? Is that you are being brought on because of your race, and and it feels so much more box checky than oh my gosh! So I helped, I helped, right? I helped build a board of a small organization in the South Bronx, and they needed a strategic planner. So we went to McKinsey to their affinity group. We got a we got an associate in the uh, in the in the black affinity group at McKinsey who grew up in the South Bronx. They nurtured him, brought him onto their board, and he did their strategic plan. But they were looking for a strategic planner, and I said, "How do you then identify a strategic planner who might actually?" add diversity to your board. And right. And that's a completely different equation for somebody who's joining your board. Don't you think? It absolutely is. And, you know, and frankly, when I joined Planned Parenthood, they immediately, they knew, they knew they wanted me in the DNI committee and I wanted to be in the DNI committee. That was my expertise, but I also had a finance background. So, you know, I was like, you know, I can be in other, in other committees as well. And so, so when they were considering my committees, I, you know, I was in the DNI committee and then they were like, well, what about, you know, what about the nominee? What about the governance committee? What about these other committees where you have experience? And so that, that in and of itself is such an important conversation to have. Now, there are some like me who are deeply passionate about some, some new board members of, of racial and ethnic and other backgrounds who are deeply passionate about this work. Yep. And you want it to be an actual match not an obligation, right? Because that, that becomes again, very much about the superficial and very much about what's in it for you versus how do you find this to be a worthwhile match for both? Both. And it was the same when I joined um, the board of Brooklyn Children's Museum. I live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and this is our local museum. My daughter's actually aged out of the museum and very likely I will be 
in the next year or two, stepping away from the from the museum. And I've been on the board now for about four years. No, sorry. Yes, about three, three, three or so years. But when I joined, they there wasn't a DNI committee, but there was a governance committee. And because of my HR background, that's where they wanted to place me. Absolutely. And so I I joined because that was a local board. I wanted to I I wanted to now that I was sitting on a national board, I wanted to um, serve on a board that was providing local support to my community. So yep. I wanted to be able to support that. And I was approached by someone who I think is one of the most exceptional executive directors of nonprofits that I've ever worked with. And Stephanie Wolchford, which, you know, no one gets to hire her because she's ours. (laughs) She's absolutely brilliant. And I was so taken by her vision and commitment and desire and understanding that the Brooklyn Children's Museum sits in the most racial and internationally diverse space within Brooklyn. And that our... Uh, it's it's the oldest children's museum in the country, which is quite beautiful. That's interesting. It is also the only arts organization in this community for miles and miles. So the benefit that we provide, not just to children, but to their families, that was something that just completely took my heart. And the work that they do, I mean, they they just, they do far more than what you would think a children's museum does from a cultural, from as a cultural institution, as an art institution, as an educating institution, it's actually quite beautiful. And so to me, it was joining, that was a, a, also a large board, about 35 board members. Mm. Um, but it was, but it was also a board similar to Planned Parenthood where they made a lot of, they make a lot of effort of keeping us together, right? It's, it's kind of, you can work as hard as you want on this board. There is not a, you know, like you, the given, I know we're going to talk about fundraising later, the give and get is different, but it is one where every single, the the ED has found just a beautiful way of matching every single board member's interest and skill set and passion with a piece of work for the board. So, you know, we've got a wonderful party organizer and his efforts, he does a lot of work throughout the year. But his major push throughout the year is our fundraiser. And yep. he, I mean, organizes the most beautiful events and has elevated our events. And that that's what he does. I helped us build our DNI plan when the city of New York asked us to do it. I, you know, I spent several hours and said, here you go. <laughs> here's, here's the plan. So each of us contributes within our skill sets and our passion, but it's not something that is that it's you know 20 hours a week. It's you know, it ebbs and flows in a really thoughtful way. And the same for the other two boards that I sit on, the Robert S. Clark Foundation, the president and the vice president are dear, dear friends. Mm -hmm. And they were very intentional about diversifying. This was an all white board. And they they were the ones who brought me and someone else. And they were very intentional about, let's be clear, Daisy, this is what it looks like. But what I loved about that board is that the grant giving is focused on trust-based philanthropy, which is an emerging area within the philanthropy space, although it's been around for quite some time, but in terms of attention, it's a small foundation that focuses on leadership programs within New York and focuses mostly on communities of color within New York. So all of these are areas, Joan, that are passion points of mine. And so that's how I joined that board. And then St. Anne's is an arts organization, and I work for a media and entertainment organization. And I was looking for a board that would round out my experience in the arts. And I also absolutely love their performances and they are their their performances are just beyond anything that you would ever see and so i loved the unique nature of the organization and again this was also an organization i'm not the only person of color but i'm one of few that 
was looking to racially and ethnically diversify their board with an intentional manner in a way that would speak to content and marketing that addresses the audiences of the future. Is the St. Anne's Warehouse Board, is that also local? Yes, this is, is it, in Brooklyn as well. Is it, is it, so is it affiliated with, um, with St. Anne's School in some fashion? No, it's not at all. Oh, it's funny. Just, yes, yes. That's funny. Um, I, I also wanted to ask a question about uh, Planned Parenthood. If I was going through, and I think about this a lot, and I talk about this a lot with boards, any kind of a CEO transition, a chief people officer feels like an absolute essential skill mm-hmm. to have on the board. Were you on that board during uh, the CEO transition? And I just, I, I, I just, I was actually just curious. I actually became vice chair right before the transition. Um, so I so this this marked my 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 former chair just retired from the board last Friday. And we were all, you know, just making some sharing some anecdotes. And I and I I jokingly said when she asked me to join as vice chair, I told her, you know, I'm really busy. And she said, Oh, you won't have to go to that many meetings, don't worry. And two weeks later, everything happened. And I was Joan. Is one of those things where you are at the right place, place at, the, at right the right time. time. Yes, because I I feel like just as a slight digression here, organizations do not really understand the vulnerability that an organization experiences during a leadership transition. That organizations don't understand that the power shifts to the board in the biggest possible way. And if that board is not healthy, if that board is not strong, if that has been what I call a make way for ducklings board, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It will not be able to hold the baton of leadership during a transition. And it's why I very much advocate for HR and folks who are in the business of in in the business of people and recruitment and and HR to join boards because of the vast every nook and cranny of an organization is impacted by the um by the exit of a CEO of a nonprofit because they're not just a CEO they're also a leader right mm-hmm. they're a leader as well so interesting the nonprofit leadership lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we're talking with Daisy Auger Dominguez, who is the Chief People Officer at Vice Media and has really made it her mission to make workplaces more equitable and inclusive. And she has a new book. It is called Inclusion Revolution, The Essential Guide to Dismantling Racial Equity in the Workplace. And I just have to laugh when I read the title of your book because book publishers make you say things like essential guide, right? (laughs) Like I I, I would left to your own devices. I'm sure you would have called it something else as I would have. (laughs) Yes, you got me. (laughs) It's no, totally. It's all about Google. It's all about SEO search, which we probably Mm -hmm. learned about at Google. So I, you said something earlier I really wanted to um, go back to, which is um, it, the, the board service is a two-way street, and I, I don't think we do a very good job of marketing the value board service brings to the board member. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could 
reflect on lessons or skills that you have developed being a board member that my nonprofit leader listeners should be reminded about. Like when you're recruiting board members, it's got to be good for the board member too. There's lots of professional development skills to garner by being on the board. And I just wondered if you could give a couple of examples. Oh, absolutely. I, I actually, I, I advocate for anyone and everyone who's interested in, in board service to find their entry point because there are so many organizations that do and can take, you know, take advantage of the amazing talents that are out there. For me, serving on boards has helped me become a better leader, a better listener, a better strategist. I sit on all these nonprofit boards because I am passionate about what they do, because I am passionate about giving back, but also because I learn a great deal and connect the dots in across different sectors and mm. spaces. And, you know, you asked me at the beginning, you know, whether, whether inclusion revolution could be applicable to the nonprofit space. I, I believe everything could be applicable because I don't believe we spend enough time connecting dots across sectors and industries. Many, many years ago, I did a fellowship in public affairs, the Coral Fellows Program. And part of that program, it's, it's an experiential leadership program that takes you through different sectors and assignments through a nine-month period to help you understand the connections between the public and the private sector. And ever since then, I've been hooked and, and I see connections everywhere. And so for me, it's been an opportunity to work for small nonprofits, you know, and I, I say work, but volunteer for small nonprofits, for big nonprofits, and in many cases, see some of the same problems and look at how they get addressed differently, or sometimes the same way when you're tackling, you know, the same problem in the same way. And you're like, okay, people like step back, look at the problem. Let's, you know, let's figure it out. It's also improved my problem solving skills uh -huh. because I now bring in all of this, these different data points and experiences to what I'm, you know, what I'm delivering on. So the skill sets are multiple. If you, and if, and if you decide or are able to serve in any of the specific committees, depending on the size of your board and the complexity of it, you know, I come from an HR background, but sitting in the sitting in the governance committee has allowed me to understand governance, uh, you know, in a much different context, not just from my HR purview. I'm usually the one that says, like, don't just ask me the HR questions. I have I have other ideas <laughs> for other things that I have learned, you know, in sitting in this board, sitting in the other. So being able to bring in the best and sometimes the worst from other nonprofit boards or the companies I've worked for and to use those as examples of, well, how do we make this better? That's, that's enabled me to be just a much better leader, a much better manager, and a much better listener. Yeah, excellent. So what is it you think that nonprofit leaders need to know about this road to creating an inclusive and diverse board? I suspect there, there's, a, there's a question that precedes that. So you, you can take that wherever you want to go with it, Daisy. Oh my goodness. I mean, I think, yes, before you, before you even undertake the work of trying to build a diverse and inclusive, and, and I would say in an equitable workforce, you need to understand what does that mean to you? <laughs> and, you know, I just met with my recruitment team today and we were tinkering with some of our inclusive hiring processes. And someone said, you know, in, the, in, in a diversity hire, and I said, whoa, whoa, let's stop. There is no such thing as a diversity hire. We've we've gone over this before, but I've had a lot of turnover on my team. And so, you know, I said, let me let me level set again for you. There are humans that we are hiring that bring in diverse characteristics and backgrounds. And every time that we are hiring for a team, we have to first look at what the makeup of the team is. And I don't like to ask 
what you know what are you looking for i like to ask what do you have too much of <laughs> right where are you headed as an organization what's around the corner we're a company of you know of cultural creators and drivers what's around the corner that we have yet to discover and what are the voices identities and experiences that are going to help us do that those are the questions that you need to be asking about your board who are we as a nonprofit who do we serve? Who do we want to serve better? Where do we serve well? Where don't we serve better? Who are the voices and experiences and backgrounds that we need around this table to help us think in a more thoughtful and meaningful and robust way? And that is then what then sets you up to, okay, then this is how we bring those voices. But it's not just about the hiring, right? The the bringing in of new board members. Joan, you also have to think about your own culture and who you are. And, and it's, you know, there's many and, you know, there's sort of sub subcultures, right? There's the culture of the nonprofit that every board has its own culture. And those cultures don't always match the nonprofit space, right? When I, when I joined Planned Parenthood, I remember I started engaging with a lot of staff members and, you know, and someone from the board looked at me at, oh, no, sorry, someone from the staff said, oh, we don't, we, we didn't know that we could ask you to help us with this. And I said, wait a second, I serve on this board. I committed myself to helping this organization. It doesn't matter whether you're a staff member or a board member. I certainly am not going to get in the way of your CEO. <laughs> you know, I partner with your CEO. I will, you know, I, I, I respect that very much, but I am here to support you as a member of this organization, because that's my job. <laughs> that's what I signed up to do. And that that in and of itself is the kind of, you know, that to me, that's the kind of board member that you want, but you want these, you want to be thinking about bringing in those voices and that experience in a way that is meaningful and additive to the organization, not extractive. And in many organizations, it's more about what can I get from you versus what can be additive here for both of us? And how do we do this in a way that is a true partnership and a true collaboration? I love everything about your answer there. Perhaps worth it to ask the uh, a little bit of the elephant in the middle of the room question that gets asked at board meetings all the time. And you can tell me how this one lands for you as well. So board members sitting around and they're talking about wanting to have diverse voices around the table. And it could be you know, you serve youth. So maybe you want to bring young people to the board or, you know, whatever that group is that you serve. And inevitably, someone will say, well, that will thwart the obligation that board members have to, you know, to, to we won't be able to have an equal footing around giving or getting money, fundraising, mm -hmm. the fundraising obligation. And it's, I want you to, well, we can bring on, this is, I, you know, I, I, I hate actually repeating these things. We can bring on more diverse people, but do know that it will impact our give-get. It will impact our fundraising obligation. We just have to be ready to accept that. Daisy, go. I mean, it just, it, it just raises every hair on my back. Right? Um, First of all, that's making a hugely biased assumption that people of color do not earn the money that you think is necessary to it. I'm, and by the way, the, it could very well be that the institutional wealth is not there. That doesn't mean that the wealth financially and from a network perspective is not there. I may bingo, not be bingo, to, bingo, bingo, bingo. I just I stop, stop. I can't even. I, I just can't even. I have to stop. It's all about networks and relationships and spheres of influence and connecting somebody who is Goodness. super passionate with introducing and inviting people to come Please. to have a part in this 
in this but that's incredible the bias, party. Joan. That's yep. the bias of undervaluing and and not knowing enough, right? Of, of making these assumptions. In tech, the assumption is lowering the hiring bar. Well, to hire black and Hispanic people, we need to lower the hiring bar. And my 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 argument is, I was like, well, you have been lowering and raising the hiring bar your entire careers. You just decide who you lower and raise the hiring bar for. It's the same thing in nonprofits. You decide who gets in. You decide who gets access to this elite privileged set of people who are making decisions about how money gets spent or about how programs get funded without an understanding that there are individuals out there with deep connections to these communities and deep connections to deep pockets that could actually benefit and add more value to the organization. But you are actually keeping them out instead of bringing them in. And when you think about board service as ambassadorship, about introducing and inviting people to be a part of what you're doing, everyone Mm -hmm. has that skill. Right. Whether you are wealthy, wealth adjacent, doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. Your enthusiasm, your ability to tell a good story and being able to tell that great impact story to your network that is different from the network of the person sitting to my right. That's what it's all about. And you know what? I mean, I also, I feel really strongly about this too, is that we don't, we do a lousy job as a sector in stewarding our current owners and stewardship yeah. is a, is a fantastic. So let's say you have a younger board member who may, may not actually, you know, may not have the wealth to hit, you know, mm-hmm. a, a certain dollar amount of giving a portfolio of donors to steward during the course of the year is a perfect way to develop and nurture a relationship. And then at the end of the year, that person, that person's institutional connection is with that person, ideally suited to actually close a gift or upgrade, right? So I think we're not actually thinking about fundraising in the right way, and we also have a lot of bias. Absolutely. And that's, and that's it. It's this unquestioned bias. That we that we just continue making these assumptions about what is possible or not. Because I remember when I was that young person who did not make enough money. But guess what? I also worked for companies that would match my donations. Yes. So you know, I I was smart enough to know that if I give you five hundred, I'm actually really giving you a thousand or fifteen hundred yep. if I do at the right time of the year, <laughs> right? And so this is how I can do it. And I also have access to other young people who want to donate. I, I remember one of my favorite projects at Google, I I forgot what it was called, but it was once or twice a year where everybody could promote to the whole company their their causes that they were excited about and they could get other people to fund them. So it was all people that were, for the most part, serving on, you know, junior advisory boards or big advisory boards. And that was the that was the time of the year where they could get so much cash and support for these organizations. So there's there's so much money that's left on the table because you're not honestly and thoughtfully thinking about how do you engage? And as you say, you steward and you sponsor and you grow the folks who will, like I did, eventually get to the place where now it's my money that goes into that. I still get others to fund, but it's actually my own money that I work with my own financial advisor and my fund to make sure that every year, all the nonprofits that I care about are getting the support and the funding that they need. Right. The combo platter of bias plus I think a very narrow and naive and somewhat (laughs) 
clueless view of what fundraising actually is creates a very imperfect storm when it comes to this particular issue. We're just about at the, out of time, Daisy. I, I wanted to I, I wanted you to imagine that you're, that there's a nonprofit leader listening today who's sweating on the elliptical or um, pulling into their parking garage. What would you like to say to them as we close out? Oh, I think you should continue to engage in this work as of change as possible because it is. And we're going to leave it right there. But I, I maybe I'll leave it by saying, I'm so glad that you pushed back when your publisher said, let's get right to the tips and tricks. Because if you do not reflect, right, if you do not take that time to figure out what your why is, the work will be hollow. It'll be shallow. I mean, we we have engaged uh, the Rabin Group out of D.C. to do a whole yes. bunch of DEI work for my online membership site. We have about 5,000 members from North America and around the world, and I want that to be a place where there is a real sense of belonging. I want it to be potentially a home for emerging leaders of color who can be set up for greater success. Um, and I can't do that work that I, I, you know, and that work requires support and We've spent a lot of time talking and reflecting, and while there may be on my team a sense of, okay, can we, can we, can we just do this now? <laughs> that the reflection piece is, a, is one of the essential pieces of the doing. Yes, absolutely. I, so, I couldn't agree more, Joan. I'm so glad you're doing that work. Yeah. So, Daisy, thank you so much for joining us. Please check out her book. It's called Inclusion Revolution, The Essential Guide to Dismantling Racial Equity in the Workplace. Um, uh, Daisy, thanks for, uh, for your time, for your service on not one, not two, not three, not four boards, which you actually articulated exactly how you can be on four different boards, at least from a mission perspective time. I, I, I'll, I'll let that be up to you and uh, and your family and your white space on your calendar. But anyway, thanks for everything that you do. Um, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Joan. All right. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, Thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.